Welcome back to PCO's Executive Speaker Series, a series where we provide our clients unfettered access to candid conversations with industry-leading CEOs, executives, and entrepreneurs on the most interesting and relevant topics of today. I'm Allie Berry, and I work in business development at Patrick Offco, and today I sat down with Mike Moore. Mike is an aviation professional with over 25 years of aircraft management, sales, and air charter experience. Mike works at Essex Aviation, consulting high net worth individuals on everything related to flying private. Beyond advising on private jet purchases, Mike and his team assist their clients by analyzing flight hours and jet usage to evaluate and recommend which alternative makes the most economic sense for individuals, from fractional ownership to membership programs, chartering, leasing, or acquisition. We are excited to have Mike join us today to provide his insight, and we hope you enjoy. Mike, thanks for coming and joining us on this. Um, I guess as kind of a way to kick it off, do you mind just giving us an idea of your background and how you ended up at Essex Aviation? Sure, sure. So I, I went to school, um, you know, to be a pilot and fell backwards into sales. So as you said, I've been, I've been in the business just about 30 years now. Um, I went to Embry-Riddle, got out of school, started selling private jet charters. I did that for about 10 years. Um started a company with an investor that had two jets. We had our own, you know, commercial private charter company. We did that for a few years, um, sold it, got into the um, aircraft management side of the business. I did that for probably 17 years. And then about three and a half years ago, I joined Essex Aviation. And it really just kind of a culmination of using like all my years of experience, everything from starting in flight operations to selling charters to managing airplanes to now consulting people that want to buy a plane, sell a plane, or just come to us and say, you know, hey, you know, here's how many hours I fly. Should I buy? Should I charter? Should I buy a jet card fractional? And like, you know, which one should I get? And we just kind of weave them through the process. Got it. Um, so kind of when you are evaluating that, are there some costs associated with purchasing and using a jet that one doesn't initially kind of consider or think of beyond just the cost of the jet itself? Um, yeah, a lot of them. <laughs> Actually, it, it's probably the most common question we get when people that are going to buy an aircraft. I mean, they always kind of start with the same, hey, I found this aircraft. You know, it's whatever. I can get this thing for $5 million. It looks like a really good deal. But I mean, to me, that's always the equivalent of, you know, buying a car. If it seems like it's way too good to be true, you know, if that car normally goes for you know, 80 grand and you're buying it for 20, it has to make you step back and say, what's wrong with it? And in the airplane world, it's the same thing. Um, I think what's the uh, the cost to acquire the aircraft is one piece of the puzzle, but what is it going to cost to own and operate that aircraft on a continuous basis? Everything from, you know, if you fly to Europe, can this aircraft even fly to Europe? Does it have the proper upgrades, modifications? Does it have the range? Uh, where does it sit in its maintenance life cycle? I mean, there's a lot, we have, I have a client I'm dealing with right now that bought an aircraft and, you know, listen, it was a great deal at five and a half million, but at some point it's like, nobody told me that the engines needed to be, you know, overhauled in 300 hours and he flies about 300 hours a year. That's going to cost him, you know, $1.4 million. It's got a landing gear overhaul that's due at the same time for about another 400,000. So now he's kind of like, Hey, listen, my great deal, $2 million after doesn't really feel like a great deal anymore. And like, and it doesn't, and it's just, you know, people will say they fall into the, I'll buy an aircraft and, you know, they're going to charter it out when I'm not using it. And, you know, I'll fly for free. That almost never happens. I mean, it, it, you know, 
every once in a blue moon, depending on the economy, depending on the aircraft type, geographically where it sits. But for the most part, if you buy an aircraft and charter it, you will offset your costs, but you're never going to fly for free, really. And, and that seems to be probably half the people I speak with come to me with, you know, this is what I'm going to do, or I've already bought this airplane. Like, how do you help? Can you help me get out of it? Like, how do I sell this thing? How do I unwind it? Can I, I can't sell it maybe because I don't want to take the hit. Can I move it somewhere else and they'll do a better job? And, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, they, they just got themselves into a bad deal and we un unwind them the best we possibly can. Got it. Okay. Um, so I guess kind of stepping backwards, is there a threshold for, the number of flights or the number of times a year that of when it does make sense just to go ahead and purchase a jet versus kind of any of the other alternatives? It does. I mean, you know, you can look on the, there's a, there's a financial side and there's just like a convenience side, right? I mean, I have clients that fly 20 hours a year that say, listen, I go from New York to South Florida. I go back and forth five times a year. Financially, does it make sense to own a plane? No, but I don't want to fly commercial. I'm tired of dealing with charter. Like I have the money. I'd rather just have my plane, my pilots. Like I know them. I know my plane. I know how it's maintained. And like, that's one thing. Those are more the, the, I don't want to say rare, but that's the minority part of aircraft ownership. A lot of our clients come to us and I would say, you know, if you're flying a hundred hours a year private, you should look, I'm not saying you should buy an aircraft. You should look at, you know, the possibility of what, what would it look like if I bought an aircraft? Like how much is it going to cost me? Because you got to buy the aircraft. There's a capital cost uh, with that. And then you got to operate it and, you know, own and operate it on a continuous basis. I mean, that could cost you to like, you know, a million dollars a year, $2 million a year. Sometimes the way we look at it is when people come to us and say, I'm thinking about buying an aircraft. Are you currently flying private? If they are, it becomes an exercise of, well, how much do you spend right now? So, I mean, yeah, it might cost you a million dollars a year to operate your own airplane, but if you're already spending $875,000 a year, you're really talking about an extra 125. And then you, then for 125, you're talking about, it's my plane, it's my crew. And you start getting into the, you know, you know, you already own the aircraft at this point, you know, you're, you're already paying for all your, your fixed costs, you know, your hangar, your insurance, your pilot salaries, you know, avionics database subscription. So Hey, if I want to take the plane and just go from New York to Boston to go to the game tonight and come back, you're really only paying for your variable costs. So, you know, that could cost you eight grand versus, you know, you're not chartering a plane for eight grand to go to New York to Boston and come back any other time, you know? So um, with that said, I would say anybody less than, in, in my mind, when I talk to people, uh, first of all, you know, if they're in a card program and they don't like the way card program works, I'll steer them away from it. Um, if they're happy with their charter person, but can I get a better deal with cards? I would say charter is probably always the least expensive option until you own a plane. Jet okay. cards are good if um, people people that typically get into jet cards are people that, um, um, you know, we have we have a particular university we work with and, you know, they fly a lot of jet cards and they're, they're going to buy an aircraft because, you know, they're in, in kind of in your field. The coaches go out on, you know, every Friday night and they watch ball games and the coaches go out and scout, you know, talent that's coming in. And sometimes they have, you know, five, six different coaches going to five or six different games across the country all on a Friday night. So owning one airplane really not going to help them a whole heck of a lot. So they'll get with a jet card or they'll get with a fractional program that'll allow them to have multiple use of aircraft on a single day. So sometimes, you know, if you're the person that goes from, 
New York to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and you sit there for two weeks and you come back, chartering is going to be very expensive because you're going to have to rely on one ways, which is highly unpredictable, or you're going to have to pay for the airplane to drop you off and then go, go back to wherever it came from, then go back out and get you. So some of those times it pays to just buy a buy into a fractional program or a card where, hey, I know how many hours advanced notice I got to give them and they're going to guarantee show up with an airplane. Sometimes um, CFOs just want to know what the absolute fixed price is. I know that it's going to cost me whatever, you know, 500 grand a year and my people can fly X amount of hours and <clears throat> that's it. Sometimes they got to explain it to their board of directors. I mean, those are kind of the, the people that fall into those typical buckets. Okay, got it. Um, so I guess when, if someone is kind of considering purchasing and you're putting together cost benefit analysis, um, what do they need to consider when they're trying to evaluate if that does make sense for them or not? If they are looking at it somewhat from an economic standpoint and thinking through is that, and they don't just want to waste. Yeah. yeah. I would say typically it's not, I mean, how many hours a year you currently fly or you expect to fly. You know, some people are like, Hey, my business is taking off. I expect to double my travel in the next year. Um, how many days you spend on the road? Cause sometimes it's not hours, you know, I mean, a charter company, if you go from, you know, New York to Pittsburgh and you want to sit there for eight days, they're not going to just charge you the flight time out and back. You're going to pay daily minimums. So, um, I would say, you know, how often do you fly? Um, how many hours you fly, how many people you typically travel with and where do you go? There's a big difference between the people that go from New York to Europe on a consistent basis or New York to the West coast on a consistent basis, or they travel with, you know, eight people and they got all their golf clubs and skis and stuff like that. I mean, you know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, here's what you want, but here's what you really need. Or, you know, you don't really need a large jet. If, if you know, 80% of your travel is going from, you know, New York to the vineyard or, you know, back and forth to Florida, you need an aircraft that's got like a three hour range that can, that you can put, you know, eight people on comfortably, you know, and then we start looking at the economics about it. You know, I mean, the other considerations would be, you know, tax considerations. We get a lot of people that say like, hey, I'll just buy this plane and I'll be able to write off the whole thing with, you know, bonus depreciation and things like that. But um, really depends on how much you use. I mean, that's great. If, if all your flying's business use, it probably will be advantageous for you from a tax perspective versus the people that fly. They have a lot of personal travel, which will, will, will not be that won't be able to use the depreciation on that. You know, we always recommend we we have very good like aviation tax people that we work with. Okay. So when it's come to us, kind of the first thing you know we say to them is like, you know, have you have you spoke to a aviation tax professional because they're going to be the one that's going to look at it and say, yes, this is what you want to do, but you're not going to get as big a write off as you you know you think you're going to get. And some people are okay with that, and some people it completely changes their opinion on whether or not they want to own an aircraft. You know, they were kind of banking on getting the depreciation. So yeah. Some of the things that we look at. That makes sense. Um, so do you mind giving us kind of a brief overview? I, I know it's a little bit complex, the whole landscape, but an overview of kind of the whole landscape. So the jet cards, charter companies, management companies, operators, and kind of how that all the interplay among all of them. Yeah, I would say probably the best best way to look at it is when you look at the the amount of the amount of aircraft that are flying around, like in the world, there's probably like 22,000 and change private jets flying around. In the United States, there's probably about 14,000 plus of private jets flying around. <clears throat> so, out of those 14,000, 
you know, you when you if you buy your own plane and say, I don't want anybody else ever chartering it when I'm not using it, it's mine. That typically falls under like, you know, FAR part 91, which is just, you know, personal use, your, your private use, I should say. If you want to charter it out and you're not using it, that falls under commercial 135, which is anybody that goes to charter a plane flies that. When you look at that, you really come down to there's probably about 3,800 jets in the U.S. that are available for commercial use. Now, that includes the, you know, all the net jet planes, all the flex jet planes, all the Vista planes, and then you got all the big brokers out there, the wheels up of the world, the sentience that I'm sure a lot of your clients are familiar with, like everybody's fishing from that same pond. So sometimes you look at it and say like, you know, we've had clients many times before that, you know, when I, when I was on in the aircraft management side of the business, you know, and I was in New York at the time, you know, we'd get a call at Teterboro, somebody Hey, I need a Falcon 7X to go to wherever, you know, Dubai next week. I'd get it from the client and then I'd get seven calls from other brokers. Like somebody sitting in an office in Manhattan making phone calls and really thinking like, I'm really going to market. Like the reality is, is that I'm the only guy with a 7X. Everybody else is just calling me, getting my price and then tacking on the profit. So on the broker side, it's kind of like a, you know, a race to the bottom and, you know, we can, we can get into that later, but there's things to look for, like when you're choosing the right, like broker, jet card, you know, yeah. acquisition team. I mean, there's, there's just a, a lot of people out there. I mean, the business is very, it's regulated from the perspective of the FAA from, from a safety perspective, but it's an unregulated business as far as, you know, if my kids want to go sell $50 million Gulfstreams tomorrow, they don't need a license from the government to do it. So it's kind of crazy that, you know, we get people sometimes that say, you know, well, you know, I talked to my guy, he knows a guy, Jim, who's, you know, he's his charter guy. And I'm like, you know, Jim worked at Starbucks two years ago, like he's not an aviation professional. I mean, <laughs> he's, he's buying low and selling high is what he's doing. Yeah. You know? And and listen, if all goes great, listen, that, that works out perfect for you. If you have a, if you have a problem, you get some of these brokers that are just, you know, sitting and I'm not a charter broker, so I'm not peddling my wares there. But I mean, we work with a lot of people that it's like, you know, hey, you know, your charter broker goes out of business or the plane goes, you know, goes tech and has a mechanical and you've already prepaid this guy a hundred thousand dollars, you know, good luck getting your money back. Or, you know, I, I had clients that used to fly to Flim Flon Canada all the time in central Canada, go fishing every year. And one year they called me up and said, Mike, we just found somebody else that can do it for less money. I'm like, you know, okay. I'm, I've never been like a hardcore press sales guy. And you know what? The, the plane broke when it got there and they called me up and said, Hey, you know, they, they paid like a hundred grand to get flown up there to central Canada. And the guy's, the guy's going to give me back, not even half, you know, do you think oh you gosh. can come to me for 50 grand? I'm like, no, cause I'm not already there. I, I still have to go there and get you and come back. So now you're, you know. So it, just it, looking at price doesn't necessarily always benefit kind of when you're looking at your long-term goals and kind of. I would say it's the biggest trap. I always tell people like, do your homework. People just don't do their homework. I mean, they, they, they just get involved with with brokers that are unreliable, that don't have the, you know, they don't do their due diligence. I mean, are your, are the crews going to training? How often do they train? Are they current? Do you have the proper insurance? Like, has it lapsed? Um, you know, I mean, do you have a safety management system in place? Does your flight operations team have like a risk mitigation program? I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier. I mean, if, if a, there's a difference between calling a pilot and saying like, hey, um, on Friday morning, we're gonna fly from New York to Tel Aviv, so you can flight plan that, you can prep it, you can get the proper sleep. That's a big difference between somebody calling their pilot at four o'clock in the afternoon and saying, we need to go to Tel Aviv and I need to be airborne in two hours. I mean, 
How do you know that pilot hasn't been up mowing his lawn for, you know, at six o'clock in the morning, he hasn't slept. And now you're telling this guy's going to go sit in a cockpit for 14 hours and your life's on the line. Yeah. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a, not, not really a joke, but a saying we have in aviation is that, you know, every client you ever sit with is like, you know, I'm just, I'm very, you know, safety is my number one concern. Like it's everybody's number one concern until it inconveniences them or starts costing them more money. You know, do I really need a third pilot? You know, I don't want to, I don't want to land here and then drive two hours to Aspen in the snow. Can't you guys just try to get in? You know, I mean, it's almost like how every NTSB article starts when we read them, when they, when they, when, you know, one just came out today, it was a, um, a Falcon 900 EXC that went off the runway in San Diego. As it turns out, like one of the pilots was, uh, had his license revoked by the FAA. The co-pilot had 500 hours total time and one hour in type. These are all things that like a good charter broker, a good management company will do their due diligence and check all these boxes and say, you know, listen, this is a safe operator, you know, so. Got it. Okay. Interesting business. Yikes. Well, that's a, that's a scary anecdote, I guess, but um, just, yeah. so I guess you need to be wary about anyone kind of at any price point. Um, yeah, 100%. What, when we're looking into kind of a membership versus owning, what are some of the benefits of that? Um, a membership or chartering, I guess, as opposed to owning, are there benefits that come with that? Um, I would say probably the biggest I still say, and maybe because I'm, I come from the aircraft management world where it was whole aircraft ownership and we buy and sell airplanes. But, you know, we also, we put, we put more people into fractional shares than we, than I buy and sell airplanes. So and I, I guess bringing that in as well, kind of yeah. the benefits of fractional ownership versus full ownership. I would say on like fractional versus whole ownership, the biggest thing I see is like ease of access. There's a lot of people that just don't want to deal with the headache of owning an airplane and sometimes it can be a headache. And I get people to come to me and say, like, you know, my, my, I've, you know, 10 friends, they all own planes. It's like an extra headache for them. They don't want to have to deal with it. And like, I agree with them. If you look at when we, when we, you know, acquire aircraft for people, we go out and we do our due diligence and we go get management proposals and vet the companies and negotiate the agreements as, is what we do as part of our service. And we only work with like, you know, the tier one management companies. Well, off the top of my head, there's probably like maybe 10 that I could think of, but there's hundreds of them out there. So when I, when I always say, when people say I owned an airplane, it was a headache for me. I'm like, I'm sure it was. I mean, she were with a management company that was like, by the way, your airplane has mandatory maintenance that's due by, you know, it has to be done by the end of the month. You know, that's it. And, you know, sorry, it just fell off our radar. No pun intended. I mean, that kind of stuff, or, you know, just, I mean, I've seen so many things happen over the years that I wouldn't even recommend a company unless it just, we have a whole list of criteria that we look at when making recommendations for management companies. And I come from that world. So, you know, we've lived with it. You know, somebody, you, know, you talk them into letting them, letting them, letting me manage their aircraft. But now I'm the guy that has to live with it year in and year out of like, yeah, I know I said it would cost you a million, but it cost you two. Well, you better have a good ex explanation as to why and like, you know, the, the safety and just everything from flight operations to accounting. So I would say ease of access, in my opinion, is the biggest reason why people get into the fractional programs, other than they need more than a lot of corporations get in just because they might need three, four airplanes in one day. Some of them from a risk management perspective, the CFO can't fly with the chairman or the CEO on the same aircraft. So yeah. you, see a lot of, you see a lot of that. I do think it's a lot of the club mentality. 
you see everybody, you know, flying net jets, they're in net jets because their friends are in net jets. You know, when, when they, when you sit down and talk to them about like what they're paying, sometimes like they just, they don't even have any idea. You just assume they're getting a good deal. Same thing with, you know, like a lot of the people that are like, well, I'm in wheels up because everybody else is in wheels up. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad deal, but that doesn't necessarily make it a good deal for you. So I would say ease of access is probably the number one thing. And people just don't want to deal with the headache. You know, yeah. they got a jet. Would you say like, if there's like a family of five or seven people, does that kind of change your calculation mentally about fractional versus owning, or does that not really come into play as much there? We have a lot of clients that own an aircraft and then they, they own like, you know, maybe like a, you know, uh, you know, not even a quarter share, an eight share of, of a fractional and flex jets or net jets to supplement their lift. I mean, okay. you can do that with your management company or what we see typically is people that were in the fractional program and they get to a point where it doesn't make sense financially to be in a frax, they should get out and buy their own airplane. They do. And they go from say 200 hours a year to like, I'll, and we help them negotiate the best like exit strategy of getting out of their fractional program. And like, all right, we're going to hold on to 50 hours. So now it's kind of like, Hey, I'm using the jet today to go there. Or my, my kids have it. My wife has it. But now all of a sudden I need to get up to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, I'll just call the fractionals and I'll use that as my supplemental lift. So we see that a lot, um, that that's a norm in the industry. And depending on, you know, you know, where you're going and the type of equipment you're looking at, I'd say the other big factors people like for consistency of product, I'm sure a lot of your, a lot of your clients have flown private. So it's, you know, they book with this and then all of a sudden, you know, a different aircraft shows up because there was a mechanical or, you know, owner pulled the airplane and, they, you know, they, the biggest thing with NetJets and FlexJet is people want to see consistency of product and you will be typically on their aircraft you know probably better than 80 percent of the time you know versus you know you go with kind of like uh some of the other companies I don't, i'm just picking one out of a hat but like say you go with vista you might be on vista's challenger 350 half the time maybe the other half the time you're not you're on somebody's you know g4 sp which you might say like well that's you know that's no that's no whatever this type of aircraft, but you know, when you look in the contract, like they can, they can substitute lift, you know, and these are, these are also things that we look at when people are and bring to their attention when they're getting in and out of these deals. Okay. That's good to know. I mean, it, these are all kind of questions and things that maybe people don't think about. They're kind of thinking, okay, I need a plane this number of times a year, but what does that mean? The actual quality of the plane, what does that mean in terms of the safety ratings, all of this? So I think that's all. Yeah, yeah. Even, even um, in, uh, a recent one I did was comparing, I won't name the companies here. I don't want to be biased, but I mean, one of the, you know, it's like, hey, here's the two fractional companies. Here's the other company. Well, they have a lower hourly rate. I'm like, well, I mean, they're also not a, I mean, there's no capital cost to get into like, say like a, a Vista, but when you get into Vista, you have to pay upfront day one for the next year. So you may not have to, you know, put out whatever $2 million, like if you're going into, you know, a fractional share at NetJets, but if you've got to put up like 700K now, and then next year you got to put up another 700K and you don't own the airplane. So you're not flying part 91. So you're subject to like federal excise tax, which at seven and a half percent, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, you get your, you know, fuel surcharge, which is a, a big thing in today's day and age with the economy. So it could add like a couple grand to your hourly rate. So I have a lot of people come and say, well, you know, these guys are, uh, these guys pencil out at, you know, 12 grand an hour. These guys pencil out at 10. I'm like, well, the sales sheet they gave you doesn't include tax. It doesn't include fuel. When you start throwing that in there, all of a sudden it kind of like levels the playing field a little bit. And I think sometimes you just got to 
you got to get away from the the salespeople and like who's going to break down you know every cost to you you know yeah that makes sense mm-hmm. um so i guess if we go back to buying if you bottom them to the spectrum no mm-hmm. refurbishment nothing like ballpark how much are you spending just for a very basic um kind of is there any minimum I mean, you could buy a jet for you could buy a jet for 500 grand i mean i wouldn't personally get on it <laughs> and okay. it'll probably cost you a heck of a lot more to operate every year but i would say if, if you're going to buy it, like anything from like a light a light jet up i would say you got to get north of like 3 million to get something in the light jet range that's not going to just crush you with residual value or crush you in operating expenses i would say you, there's decent planes you can buy for like 5 million 7 million but it, but it really depends like i said it, it's not just the cost of the airplanes where does it sit in its life cycle you know i mean the key to buying an airplane is like you want to buy an airplane that if it has a 10 year inspection you'd love to buy an aircraft at a good price point that just had its 10 year inspection where you know that like and the the biggest thing i tell people is like have an exit strategy if your goal is to get out of this airplane five years from now then what's the landscape on this aircraft model going to look like five years from now you could say well i could buy a g200 or a challenger 604 today for pretty much the same price i could tell you the 604 is going to have higher residual value five years from now than a 200 and then if you're going to offset your costs with charter you really have to look at what's the market look like for that. I mean, I do that all do that all the time. The guys say, well, these guys can fly at 400 hours a year. I'm like, listen, I'm sure they could in last year's economy where the business was booming and everybody was flying and getting 400 hours wasn't a problem. But guess what? All your fixed costs and your variable, your fuel is going to go up pretty much every year, your parts, labor, your engine programs, all your costs are going to go up. Your charter rate is going to kind of remain the same. So what you're netting out is going to kind of squeeze as the years go on in the older airplanes. It's going to be like 400 hours a year. No problem. Next year, probably 375 the year after that 350. And then, you know, boom, like, you know, you're in a G4 SP and all of a sudden Gulfstream comes out with a new aircraft model. So everybody in the 650s goes, goes to the new one, you know, all the 650s hit the market, all the, and then all the 550s become more attainable. All the people down with the four SPs now, all of a sudden they're flying 250 hours a year. So you, you need to be, prepared for that and you need to look at you know you got to build that into a budget and, and have a pro forma that kind of reflects not only now but what's this going to look like and then what's the residual value going to look like on that airplane five years from now yeah so getting into that residual value a bit more I, I mean I know when you drive a car off the lot the depreciation hits immediately what mm-hmm. is there kind of that percentage that large hit the same way with airplanes um, and what is kind of the secondary market like for private jets? Is that, um, is that something that's pretty I would say, yeah, jets are, tough? I mean, listen, jets are no different than cars. The first person that buys it and drives it or flies it off the lot, taxis it off the lot, takes the biggest hit in depreciation. But it really, I, I got to say, it really, really depends on where the market's at. I mean, we're seeing aircraft values drop right now. I mean, during COVID, nobody was flying. Prices kind of like were stable and started coming down a little bit. And then all of a sudden post COVID when everybody was flying, I mean, business, anybody on this call that's chartered in the the last year and a half knows that lift was very tight and prices were up over what they paid in the past. And um, we saw aircraft values increasing. I mean, I had guys that bought airplanes for five and a half million that were worth 7 million. And now all of a sudden like that kind of market that, that, I mean, that's, 
I've been at this 30 years. I think that's like happened like one other time I can think of. That also happened in 2006 and seven. Values were very high. We had people that bought aircraft at inflated prices. And then the financial crisis of the late 2008 hit and people were just underwater with airplanes. I don't think we're going to see that now. The general consensus of like in the industry and everything that we that we we read tells us that like values are definitely going to dip, but you're not going to see these crazy you know, reductions. So right now, what we're experiencing in the market is, you know, if you have an airplane that you know it used to be worth 15 million, people were buying them for 18. Now they're starting to come back down. I don't think they're going to go lower than what they should have been at. And then you'll see normal market depreciation on an annual basis. And that's typically like, I'd say ballpark 8%, 10%. A lot of it depends on the economy. You know, like it really does. I mean, if the economy's great, that's another thing. People that like, I may sell my plane now. I may sell it next year. I'm like, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to throw shade here, but I mean, like, I don't think the economy is going to be much better next year than it is right now. You know I mean? I think that's a fair assumption. So I think if you own a plane today and you're thinking about selling it, you probably like my advice would be probably try to get out of it today. You know, right. unless there's some people that come to us in uh, you know, our recommendations, like don't sell it or don't even buy. I can tell you, we're, we're one of the companies out there that I'd make a lot more money in my life if I was dishonest, but we're the first people to tell you when you come in and say like, listen, it makes no financial sense for you to buy an airplane. Yeah. And I got to say, we do that because somewhere along the line, you were going to be the guy that told you the truth and somebody that is looking for an airplane, you know, you'll get, they'll, we'll get the referral. And that's just the way our company operates. Got it. And when you own a plane, does flying more hours automatically cost more money or how does that all kind of even out in the end? I know you kind of mentioned fixed costs, yeah. variable costs, but getting into that a little bit deeper. I would say, I mean, two parts that like, yes, it will cost you more money on an annual, you know, if you buy an airplane, if you buy an airplane, like you're responsible for all the fixed costs. And when I say fixed costs, I'm talking about your hangar, your insurance, your pilots, salaries, benefits, their crew training, all your like database navigation subscriptions, all that kind of stuff. Like those are your costs. Like you own them. So if you buy a plane and say, Hey, that's going to, all my fixed costs are at 700 grand a year. And now what's your variable cost? Your variable costs are, your fuel, your uh, parts, labor for maintenance, and then your engine, if you're on an engine program or your APUs on, on like a program, which is like, an, like, you know, have an insurance program for your engines. Um, those costs. So, you know, if you, you have your fixed costs, so the more you fly, yes, it will cost you more money, but the more you fly in an hourly rate will decrease as you go on, which is different from the fractionals. Fractionals is more of a linear cost. You know, if it costs you 14 grand an hour, it's always going to cost you 14 grand an hour. If you buy an aircraft and it's costing you say $12,000 an hour to fly now and you fly 150 hours a year and all of a sudden your business picks up and you're flying 200 hours a year, you're going to see your hourly costs dropping because now you're spreading your fixed costs you know, amongst more hours. So your overall cost will drop. So that's also a big thing of companies that say, or even people that come to us and say, I see my, I'm flying, you know, in the last five years, every year I'm flying more and more and more. And it's like, well, maybe you should buy a plane because it, at, at this rate, five years from now, you're going to be paying eight grand an hour versus 12 grand an hour, yeah. you know, and that's really kind of where it comes into play. So yeah. it does kind of come out to a calculation and projection of kind of how many hours you're going to fly. And 100%. I would never recommend anybody that, um, you know, whatever, like purchase an aircraft without sitting down and having like a, a serious conversation with a tax attorney and an aviation, you know, 
somebody that does acquisitions and consulting, you know, I mean. So that was, I'm, that was going to be my next question is, um, are there any increase in taxes or does that vary by state or in some cases, if you're purchasing through a business, can you use this as any sort of like a tax shield or tax write-off? I mean, you can, I think we touched on a little bit earlier about, you know, if you purchase an aircraft, you know, like at the end of the year is always busy because people buy an aircraft and they want, and they want to get like last year was hundred percent bonus depreciation for people. So, you know, you're buying a $10 million asset and you can you know write off almost $4 million of it. It's very, very, very attractive thing to people buying airplanes. So the end of the year is always kind of like a rush to the finish line. And basically what the, what it says is that you have to, you have to close, you have to purchase the aircraft and you have to do one into service flights. You have to have one business flight in that year. If you do, then you could write it off in that year. So, I mean, but there's a lot of people that buy an airplane in October and like, well, you know, I was flying on business, but you know, I had, you know, my 10 of my friends came along for the ride. Well, I could tell you that the IRS is going to come in and say, divide that by 11. So now you, you were, you can depreciate, you know, you know, you know, or if you had nine of the people to make simple math, now you can appreciate 10% of that, that flight, not a hundred percent of that flight. So I would always say there's a benefit to, there, there could be a tax benefit to purchasing an aircraft, but also just in the whole transaction process, we get involved with people a lot that say, you know, I bought this airplane, you know, I didn't use a broker. I didn't use an acquisition person. Um, I didn't have an aviation tax guy. I bought the airplane. Um, you know, we closed on it in whatever Pennsylvania, cause that was going to sit. And like, I didn't realize that, that Pennsylvania had a sales tax and now Pennsylvania wants a 6% tax on my $10 million plane that I just bought. I mean, like good tax attorneys will say, and when we do closing, it's very typical for me, like, Hey, we're in Lincoln, Nebraska, finishing up the pre-buy in this airplane. We're all going to get on. We're going to fly it to like, you know, typically like Hartford, Connecticut, because New York is you know, obviously close to New York and Connecticut's a big tax-free state. It has a flyaway tax exemption. So we can go there, close. In other words, the aircraft was purchased in the state of Connecticut. Now there's no sales tax on it. But then you got to get into, all right, where's it going after that? You live in California, you know, tax people will tell you like, hey, your airplane should not sit in the state of California for more than X amount of days the first year you own it, or you might be subject to California state tax. Or, oh, wow. or, or if you put it on a, if you put it on a part 135 for commercial operations, you might be sales use exempt. And a lot of people will buy an airplane they'll put it on their management company's charter certificate and they'll just charter it to themselves. You know, I paid $50,000 to fly on my own jet and the management company takes the check, cashes it and sends it back to me. I mean, it's really just a, it, it's a, you know, you're just moving money around, but it works from a tax perspective. Nobody, they don't ever fly any like unrelated third parties on their airplane. So yeah, there's a lot of things. That's why I always highly recommend And you know, listen, I'm not a tax expert. So when people come to me, but I'm like, I can tell you the top five people that I think are the best in the business at setting up your entities and shielding you and, and you know, how you're going to, you know, make the most of this and, and get the best tax benefit, whether you have one or not, you know, got it. Got it. And I guess on, from that perspective, if you live in California, you, that's something you need to take into consideration. I assume if you want your plane to sit there and it's going to yeah. be costing that much more. hundred percent. But a lot of times it's kind of like, well, listen, if you go park it in Nevada, again, you're already on the hook for the fixed cost, right? So if your variable cost is say four grand an hour and you park it in um, wherever Utah, where you don't have the, the same tax exposure. And then every time you fly the plane, you just 
fly over, get yourself, and then go wherever you're going. Like it may add, you know, whatever it may add, you know, whatever 10 grand at four grand an hour onto your thing per trip, or maybe it costs you seven grand because it's not even an hour to get there. Right. At, at the end of the year, I mean, it's a lot better than paying 6% of $10 million. So, I mean, but these are what the tax people do. Like they'll say like, Hey, here's how many, here's how many days you could be there. And, and every state has a different tax code. So okay. there's a lot of people that it's like, you know, where do you live? Where's the plane going to sit? You know, how long has it got to sit there? Sometimes it's different in year one than, than subsequent years, you know? Right. So. Okay. Well, there's a lot to get into there. I'm sure. As yeah. well. yeah, uh, we don't even get into it because like everybody has their own, everybody's got their own setup. You know, That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so ballpark, what are some of the major replacement costs? Um, let's say someone's kind of looking at purchasing an airplane and thinking through, okay, how often, I know you mentioned the engine programs, how yeah. often are replacing landing gear, that type of stuff. What are some of those costs like? Yeah, I would say e each aircraft type has like, you know, like Falcons have big like 2C, 3C, 1C inspections. Like those are the big ones. So every time we get into a first thing, like we look at when you're going to buy an aircraft, like once we determine kind of like all the, how much you want to spend, where do you go? How often do you fly? Like you narrow it down. Okay. You're going to look at like a, either a Falcon 2000 LX or a Challenger 350 or a G280. All right. So here's the big inspection items. So when you're going to purchase an aircraft, that's like the one thing you have. There's, you know, 20 of them for sale in the market. We look at all 20 and kind of run them through. Where do they sit? Like this one's got a beautiful interior. It's got, it's got 5G Wi-Fi. It looks great but it has this major inspection. And a lot of times I don't want to give the impression, you know, all aircraft go through inspection. So a lot of times it's not um, that you don't want to buy one that's coming due. But if you look at an airplane and say like, this airplane's probably worth $10 million, but it's got a million dollars worth of maintenance due in the next year. Or so I'd make going and make an offer at like whatever, 8.9 and see where we fall in the, in the negotiation process. And that's kind of the way you got to, you know, the play of the game, that's the strategy you go in with. So it's not that you, you just have to be aware of them. But I think a lot of people buy airplanes and they just don't even, I mean, there's a lot of brokers out there that are just like, listen, I get paid when I close transactions. So I'm not, I'm not raising any red flags that pop up when we're like halfway to the altar. And I think you got to be with a, with a acquisition uh, team that is not afraid to give you the bad news when you get up there too, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of those things. And even sometimes it's, modifications we went through like all the all like the avionics upgrades like fans one that was due like a couple of years ago that was a big thing because you had to have you have to have certain equipment if you want to fly you know to europe so a lot of people you know people are buying and selling airplanes and they're like hey is it compliant or is it not compliant yeah that was going to be exactly my next yeah. question what's the difference purchasing a jet that flies only domestically versus internationally is, does that change the price a ton or is it just regulation or certain approvals you need before you do something like that? Or I, mean, I would say the biggest thing I would say is that, you know, if you're going to buy an air, like if you travel a lot abroad, depending on where you're going, you should buy an aircraft that can complete those missions like effectively people that buy, like, I don't mind making a fuel stop. I'm like, well, you say that now. I mean, cause People think to themselves like, well, I'll just stop in Salina, Kansas for 20 minutes and get fuel, stretch my legs, and then I'll continue on to LA. I don't mind making a fuel stop. But people that are in, you know, I've had trips to, you know, Africa where the person's like, hey, now all of a sudden I want to go here. And by the way, going home, it's like, well, you know, listen, you just, you, it's not like you can't just fly over Afghanistan and fly over some of these countries without, you know, every country 
you got to get an overflight permit. And some of them are, you know, some of them are very easy. It just takes an hour. You got to fill out your, your flight operations team does the proper paperwork and they get the approvals. But some of them can be pretty tricky. You know, if you want to go into like, you know, some different parts of the world, you have to have, I mean, you have to have the proper avionics equipment just to get in there. And then you don't want to, like, listen, me, me personally, I don't want to be on an airplane that's got to make fuel stops in sketchy parts of the world. Mm-hmm. I'd rather fly so right over the top of them. <laughs> you know? If you're looking at kind of, um, there's actual equipment that's on international flights that's required to land or be in certain countries. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I, I have a I have a a, a G four today that we're in the process of selling for somebody, and like it's not fans one compliant, means you can't fly in Europe. So, could it fly to Europe? A hundred percent. It could go back and forth. A G four SP can go back and forth to you know, London both ways, east to west, nonstop. Can it fly there because it's got the proper equipment? No, I mean, and it would cost about a million dollars to upgrade your airplane to that equipment. So, I mean, that's one of those things where, well, you're buying an airplane for four and a half. Is it really worth buying an airplane? If 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 that's your mission, like you got to take that into consideration. I mean, you're going to have to upgrade a million dollars worth of upgrades for just that one item. Now, if you get into like, you know, I don't like the interior. I don't like, I want to upgrade and put in like, you know, I got to have Wi-Fi 100% of the time, no matter where I go in the world. Well, you want to have, KA band, KA band costs like $750,000 to install. So, I mean, it's a, that's some of the things we see too. Well, the guy that sold me the plane said it had Wi-Fi. I'm like, yeah, it's got domestic Wi-Fi. Anybody that's ever flown on a commercial flight knows that, you know, if you're on go-go, as soon as you head out over the ocean, heading to the Caribbean, like you lose your internet, you know, same thing with <laughs> jets. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Um, and then what is your best advice um, for someone who likes to fly private and maybe flies private a bunch on just friends jets. Maybe they're not even going and getting a membership or a jet card, but they have a lot of friends who might have access and they're jumping on these flights kind of quickly. Is there, in terms of safety and other things that they need to consider, um, what's kind of your advice for those types of people? Yeah, I would. And and the the example I gave about the jet that went off the runway in San Diego a few years ago today is, is a perfect example. I mean, like, Pretty much all, I, I want to say all, but all part 135 commercial planes, if you're, if you're getting on somebody's plane and it, and it's on somebody's 135 certificate, like it does, it does charter, then typically, you know, like they should be meeting certain criteria. They should have, they should be following their maintenance, you know, protocols and doing all the inspections on time. The crew should have a certain amount of hours, time and type. They should be insured, all this kind of stuff. That doesn't mean that they are. I would always say, do, do your due diligence you know, go on like in, in Argus, like they have uh, sites you can sign up like trip check, you know, or just know the questions to ask, you know, like, hey, are both of your pilots, you know, typed in this aircraft? You know, like, yeah, my guy's got 5,000 hours. I'm like, well, if your guy's got 5,000 hours flying a single engine prop plane, you know, from, you know, Palm Beach to Nassau, that's a little bit different than a guy that's got jet time, who's been to like flight safety, that's been in full motion simulators. That's like, you know, yeah. your order goes to Aspen, you know, this week when you come, we're going to practice like what happens when you lose an engine when you're coming out of Aspen. And those guys are going to be like every millisecond counts when you're having when you're having an issue on an airplane. So I would say do your due diligence. Always is the aircraft properly insured? Um, do the pilots, you know, are the pilots, did they go to school on that aircraft type? To me, that's like the biggest question. And are they, and are they current? I mean, that's the biggest thing you see on, on these airplanes. And I get it. Like tough question to ask. I've had, I've had people call me and be like, Hey Mike, I'm flying to my buddy's plane. Love him. Great guy. But like, you know, his, his people are a little sketchy and, you know, like 
what do you think of this operation? I can look at it and like, I always just tell them like, listen, I, I can do a little bit of homework for them. And sometimes I call them back like, no, nah, they're good. Or like, listen, I can't tell you what to do, but if it was me with my wife and my kids, like I'd rather fly United. Like I wouldn't get on yeah. that plane. With them. And sometimes you see that. And it's just, it boils down to um, working in Teterboro for, for 28 years. Like you walk through the hangar every day, you see the same airplanes that are in there and they're the same problems all the time. It's like, there's a big difference between aircraft operators or management companies that are, that are doing proactive maintenance. And that's, that's just how they operate versus the people that are like, they only put the plane down, like when it's absolutely broken and they can't like not operate it. Like there's, you know, we can't operate it unless we have two of these components on board, which were a good operation will be, we can, but it's best practice to fix it today. It's no right. different than people that drive around with dents in their cars. I mean, yeah. it can, but you could look at it and say, you know, that this person is definitely more meticulous. Chances are, I'd rather barrel down the hill in San Francisco in that guy's car than that guy's car. <laughs> well, that, those are good questions to know yeah. and keep in mind. Yeah. Uh, I guess kind of, I, you mentioned the twinning, like a single engine versus two engine. Um, does life insurance cover an individual always when flying private? Or is there anything that you need to keep in mind specifically when you are booking like specific planes with relation to life insurance? I would say... I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. I would imagine your life insurance covers you unless you have some kind of stipulation in your own binder that says that you can't fly in a private jet. But generally, insurance on aircraft are, you know, if you're going to travel abroad, I mean, listen, I'd always find out how much liability insurance um, it carries. I mean, like, you know, typically it'll be like 150 million for like mid-sized jets, 200 and 300 million for, for like large jets, like, you know, Globals, G550s, Global 6000s, yeah. like, you know, Falcon jets, stuff like that. You'll see higher liability limits on those. And I would say I'd always ask that question because, listen, if you're if you're an ultra high net, we've, we've done, I've done trips in the past for athletes, for uh, people, you know, people in Hollywood that, you know, they want to, they'll fly the trip. But like, you know, if you're doing like, if you're flying like the, the Black Sabbath tour, you know, or, you know, you know, any, any of these people like, you know, pick one that, you know, um, the name is, I was going to say the, the, the very popular concert girl right now. I can't think of her name, the blonde haired girl that does all the big concerts, but uh, Taylor anyway, Swift. <laughs> yeah, Taylor Swift. Like I can tell you, like Taylor Swift should not get on a plane with $150 million of liability insurance. And if she books a tour, that operator can certainly go to their insurance, you know, broker and say like, Hey, on this trip, we need to buy additional coverage and they'll do it like on a, on a, on a, you know, trip by trip basis. And it's not expensive to do. I mean, when you look at the big scheme of things, you know, if you're paying 80 grand a year for a, a policy, if you wanted to, you know, it might cost you another 20 grand a year to increase your liability limits. If you own the plane, like yeah. money well spent in my opinion, but if you're chartering a plane, you, you could always ask that question. And if the charter operators like, no, we're not doing that to me, it would always be like, they just don't like, they're just saying no, because nobody wants to like do the extra work. They don't get, there's no benefit for them to do it. You know what I'm saying? So that makes sense. Yep. Um, and I'll wrap up with this question because we're kind of getting towards the end, but just mm -hmm. kind of in your opinion, where do you see kind of commercial and private aviation going? Um, kind of, do you think that we'll get a significant decrease in time? Like the actual flights, the technology will get there and it'll get much faster to go east coast to west coast or kind of what are your um, thoughts on that i mean listen i mean they i mean like i mean the concord hasn't flown in many many years and I, there's 
you know, I feel like every year I go to like MBA, which is the big national business aircraft association show. And there's always somebody that's launching their new, you know, you know, supersonic jet that's going to, you know, London to New York in three hours. And like the technology's there. It's just, can they, you know, can somebody build one of those jets and can you buy it for like 75, 80 million? And like, does it make sense financially? And like, you know, flying around the US, I mean, you can't, you know, you can't take off out of Newark airport and break the sound barrier. You're going in Nebraska. It's just, they don't let you do it, you know, unless you're in the military. But so I, I do think like, listen, I think every year aircraft, the OEMs produce airplanes that are safer. I, I would say that all the new ones are safer and have better technology. Not to say that the old planes can't upgrade their technology. It's expensive, yeah. but you certainly can. But every year, newer technology becomes available collision avoidance systems, uh, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it gets better. The engines get more fuel efficient. Unfortunately, those airplanes all come with a huge price tag. You know, obviously brand new airplane out of Gulfstream is going to cost you a lot of money. So uh, I think technology gets better. I think more and more people are getting into the market. Probably the most interesting stat I heard about a year ago was this industry grows at a rate of normally like 10% a year. And that's, you know, people that, you know, become like, you know, in a lot of the worlds, it's like anybody worth over 30 million is considered ultra high net worth, not net worth, but ultra high net worth. Well, like that pool, you know, seems to be growing, you know, and I think that um, since COVID, there's always a demographic of people that can afford to fly, fly private, but never do. They just can't get their mind around. It. I mean, I've had clients that are like, listen, I probably made more money than I could spend. My, my kids, kids can spend in their lifetime, but paying 50 grand to fly from New York to Florida makes no sense to me. I could fly whatever for 400 bucks. I'm retired. I'm not even in a big hurry. I'll do it if I have to, but I don't have to do it. Then COVID hit and it drove a whole new demographic of people into the market that were, I think some people like looking for that excuse for kind of like me when I go to Best Buy, like I don't need a bigger TV, but if I can somehow justify in my mind, I'm going to buy one. It's the same mentality really. So I think that um, in the industry grew by like 40% during COVID and it's still wow. back like 20%. And so you still have the industry growing at a much bigger, hence the, the lift last year, it got so much more difficult to, to, you know, people used to call on Thursday night and book an airplane for the weekend. Like last year, that was impossible at a decent price, you know? So I think that as time goes on, more and more people are getting into the market faster than the OEMs can produce airplanes and faster than we can train pilots and, you know, more airplanes, more pilots. Now the pilots get a little pickier. I mean, 20 years ago, pilots could come into my office and it was like, you know, two crew flying 500 hours a year. And if they didn't like it, like they were replaceable, not to sound mean, but that's just the way the business was. And nowadays it's kind of like pilots that fly more than 300 hours a year. Like they won't even take a job on a crew. That's a two man crew. They want three crew. And now all of a sudden, like, you know, they want their 401k matched at 12%. They want zero copay on their healthcare. And like, and they're getting it because there's a pilot shortage. I mean, they've been talking about it since I was in I was in college and listen, I was in college in the late eighties. So, I mean, like, but it's finally here. I mean, it, it really is. It, it finally came to fruition. So, I mean, those are costs that have increased and I don't see that going backwards anytime soon. I think if you want to be a pilot, it's going to be a good career to get into for the next 10 years, you know, that very much so. Wow. Well, Mike, thank you so much for all of your insight and wisdom. I'm sure that um, there might be some other questions that trickle in. We didn't quite get to all of them, but um, Feel free to reach out to me, yeah. time and uh, 
I'm happy to put anyone in touch with Mike um, who has any questions come to mind or is interested in kind of thinking through some of that cost benefit analysis of what all the options are and making sure they're thinking about the right things. Um, even if you are just flying on friends jets and want to know the right questions to ask. Um, exactly. So thank you again. And thank you to all of our um, friends, family, um, PCO club members, clients, advisors, and all of the above. Um, thanks for joining us. And um, thanks you again, Mike. No problem. Take care, everybody. Have a nice day. Thanks for having me.